0: So a number of years ago, just for fun, I Googled the phrase "I want a new life," and the top hit came up was from a website called Help.com. Apparently, it was a little one of those little bulletin board, online bulletin board things where people could quote quote quote, uh, uh, questions and people would offer um, well help, I guess, right? Um, And someone though in one of their posts had tried to sum up all of people's responses to someone saying "I want a new life." And they gave him categories. I thought these were funny. You probably won't because that's the luck that I'm having when I try to say these things up here. First kinds of response is the aloof person. I want a new life. Well, what's wrong with the one you have? Second kind is the motivational speaker. Hey, don't sit here and tell us. Get up and walk outside and shout it to the world. Make whatever changes you think you need. Then there's one of my favorites, the mother You must be a fantastic person who has people around you who love you. You should know that at any point you can change your life and do anything you want. (laughs) I thought it was funny. (laughs) Then there's the cynic who says, you know, this world is just terrible. You're going to have to deal with it. Then there's the selfish. Well, sounds good, but my life will be the same tomorrow. And then there's my personal favorite that the person called the sympathizer who says this. I feel like that all the time. I'm in school with loads of debt, which I don't know how I'm going to pay off because I've realized too late that I really don't want to pursue the major I'm pursuing. But I can't quit now because I'll only owe a lot of loans and I won't have any degree to show for it. I know I need to suck it up and finish, but it gets so hard sometimes I'm just wishing that I was on my own and had my own job. Someone's saying, I want a new life. How do you respond to that? And the reason why I was taking the time to waste this on the, online is because of this conviction that I've come to after spending as much time as I have in Romans chapter 6. And it simply comes down to this. At the heart of Christian teaching is the intention to give you a new life that, that, that cannot be avoided. And I think kind of needs to be said a little more often in our day because Jesus did not talk like he was simply offering his people a simple spirituality juicer uh, that was going to come down and get you through tough times. No. Rather, Jesus makes these really imperialistic claims, looking for every square inch of your body and soul, always looking to go into the very foundational motivation centers of your life, this place that the Bible calls the heart. But I do get curious what it sounds like to religious people to hear things like this. I think for, in one case, there's some people that think this is really good news, because the life that you have been living has become intolerable, and honestly, the idea of a new life and deep change sounds wonderful. For others of you, you probably might find it inconvenient, perhaps, because it's been easier to have Jesus as an appendage to your life. You like where Jesus is, unobtrusive. <laughs> for others, you're going to be super bothered by this notion because you kind of want to live life on your terms. I mean, come on now, nobody can tell me how I have to live my life. But regardless of how you react to this, you've got to understand that in Romans chapter 6, Paul is setting out, he's going to begin with this peculiar, but as it turns out, understandable objection that someone might raise to this doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And what he begins to unpack in all of this is is more how this new life is going to come and what it is that's distinctive about the way Jesus began to deal with people in that regard. Now look, I'm going to be the first to admit, after I went through this in the first service, I thought, you know, some of this is a little bit technical. Some of it is a little bit heady. Some of it is a little bit esoteric. But I promise you that most commentators say that if you can figure out and wrap your mind around Romans chapter 6, you will have unlocked vast majorities of the Apostle Paul throughout the entirety of the New Testament. So much hinges on how Paul looks at this question of what does it mean to change. Now bear with you for a second. I realize this is a little bit of insider talk. These are for people who actually are claiming to be Christians and trying to say, I'd like to change my life. But I do think from those of you who are on the outside of Christianity this morning, looking in, it does offer a powerful way of looking at change that I'm not sure the world talks about very much. Let's see if we can dive into it in three particular headings. First of all, I want to look at our connection to Jesus. I want to look at the transformation that results. And finally, see if there's some implications for our new life that we want. Okay, let's start that first one, our connection to Jesus. We begin with this hypothetical question that I think I could summarize in this way. It's as if someone would say, wow, Paul, this sounds awesome. (laughs) Because it sounds like what you're saying is, we should just keep on sinning in order to get more grace. This is a cool relationship. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. This will be awesome. But of course, Paul looks and goes, no, that of course can't be the case. But before we move on to the reason why he says why, please notice something that the the, uh, commentator Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones made mention of that I think is powerful. Because he said, because Paul thought this was a potential objection, it must be an understandable objection. He puts it this way, the gospel needs to be taught in such a way that it makes you think that's too good to be true. Because if that's true, I can just do whatever I want. Here's what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, there's no better test than whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. That some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that if you're saved by grace, you can do whatever you want. I think that's fascinating. If if you're coming and telling people that justification is in any ways rested upon your works, nobody's ever going to bring up this objection. You thought about that? It's only the full, full declaration of grace-centered gospel that would even invite this particular question. And so it becomes a really good test for the gospel that we think we are presenting. Are people tempted to go in this particular direction? Because if they're not, they may not have heard the actual gospel that Paul is teaching. I find that fascinating. But look, let's dive though into why Paul thinks that to go on sinning is inappropriate for someone who has been justified. That is the question that he poses. Look at verse 5, because it really centers on that particular verse. For, Paul says, if we have been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, this is the center right here. Paul says that those who have been justified have such a profound and intimate And mystical connection with Jesus that it's not unreasonable to say that the stuff that happened to Jesus, namely his death and resurrection, can also be said to have actually happened to us, his followers, even though clearly, and many Christians object to this, they're like, well, I really wasn't there. So here's what I want to do, and I want to park on this question for just a minute. Who talks that way? Well, believe it or not, I found someone who does, and it turns out that it is Forrest Gump. Now look, Forrest Gump is a 30-year-old movie, and the older you get, the more irrelevant your sermon illustrations become. If you've not seen it, it won an Academy Award. That's on you. But here's the story. (laughs) Forrest Gump goes through this entire adventure with the love of his life, whose name is Jenny. And finally, by the end of the movie, they get together after Jenny has just a rough life. Forrest, of course, has been to Vietnam. Uh, He's had this cross-country run that he did. He's had this amazing life. But towards the end of the movie, they're sitting together and talking, and Jenny looks and says, Forrest, were you afraid when you were in Vietnam? And Forrest says, well, yes. Well, I don't know. Sometimes it would stop raining long enough for the stars to come out. And then it was nice. It was just before the sun goes down to bed on the bayou. There was always a million sparkles on the water. Like that mountain lake, it was so clear, Jenny. It looked like there were two skies on top of one another. And then in the desert, when the sun comes up, I couldn't tell where heaven stopped and earth began. It was so beautiful. And almost with a sigh, Jenny looks at him and says, I wish I could have been there with you. Well, Forrest pauses and turns and looks at her dead in the face and says, You were. You were. Now here's the thing, everybody in the theater watching that movie knew exactly what Forrest meant because Forrest meant that while he was physically separated from Jenny, she was so close to his heart, so dear in his thoughts that what had happened to Forrest could be said to have happened to her. It's in fact amazing that in the movie Forrest tells Jenny this at a huge turning point for her. And you can see just how much it begins to heal her when she accepts his affections on her behalf. What Paul is saying is, therefore, that the declaration of our justification, so far from being some cold, dry, legal matter, is actually a deeply personal union of two hearts. The result of which is so profound that it's an exchange of identities. That is, all the things that could be said to be true of Jesus are now true of his people. Why? Because what was true of his people, namely their sin, became true of Jesus on the cross and he died for it. Think of it this way. At your baptism, Paul says, there was a funeral of sorts. But unlike any funeral you've been to, because in this funeral, somebody rose from the dead at the end, namely you. So Paul is saying, how can you have this kind of powerful connection between you and Jesus and celebrate and live in and offend everything that Jesus hates? And his answer is, you can't. Why? Because at your funeral, verse 7 says, quote, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Your sin was dealt with. The offense of sin, that is. So at your resurrection, your new life started. That's what happened to you when you became a Christian. This is a profound, powerful image to show this deep connection Jesus has with his people. Okay, so that's the first point, that there is this connection. Secondly, though, there's a resulting transformation from this. Because this is usually where the questions start. Especially when you look at verses like verse 2. Because it looks a little too straightforward, doesn't it? Look what it says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? All right, that phrase died to sin is the problem. That's where it gets confusing. What does he mean when he says that you and I have died to sin? Okay, before we dive into that, let's say at least two things that we know that it can't mean. The first thing that Paul cannot mean is, is that we no longer want to sin. That we no longer ever have a desire to be disobedient. If so, why else would Paul be writing us to tell us to, to, to avoid sin if the whole desire of sin was suddenly taken away at our justification? The second thing that I think it can't mean, died to sin, is that you, know, you really ought not to sin. That's just not strong enough for how radically Paul is putting this. Here's what I think he does mean. Paul is saying that every justified person has been taken out from under the tyranny of sin. Here's what I mean by this. Look, go back and review our discussion that we had from Romans chapters 1 through 3. Because as we talked about human beings' problem in sin, we mentioned that sin has this addictive, I have to do this quality to it. We're powerless underneath it because it defined our natures. (coughs) Now, however, because we are so associated and connected to Christ, we no longer have to follow its orders That's why verse 14, the last one Kurt read, sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the phrase. In other words, what has changed in a Christian is now he has a choice in the matter. Whereas before he was too far under its addictive power. So when Paul says, how can you live in sin after you're justified? He means that you're unable to swim in it. You're unable to let it be the main tenor of your life. To live in sin would be to tolerate it, to even invite it without any grief whatsoever by it, or any, at the very least, revulsion of it. It would would also mean to make no progress in it, not to be able to see God being able to do something in my fight against it, even if that's nothing more than just a greater sensitivity to your own disobedience. And look, We we, we wrestled to try to get illustrations on this, and I've come up with two. We'll see what you think of it. First of all, let's start back in the in the 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 Civil War, the American Civil War. Um, After the Emancipation Proclamation was made, in a moment, slaves in America enjoyed a brand new status. Did they not? A new standing in a world of freedom they suddenly had. But as we have clearly seen, it has taken decades to realize, in fact, in actuality, what was what was established in principle so long ago. Does that make sense? In other words, though they were relieved from the tyranny of slavery, the dominion of slavery, it's very hard to see that flesh out in societal attitudes and certainly in people's internal heart level attitudes. So you see the difference. Just, there's a, coming out from the dominion of something means suddenly I have a choice, but that doesn't mean that the struggle is over. How about this one? Let's imagine that you are renting the place that you live in and you have a landlord who is awful. He's a jerk and a bully, always coming and pounding on your door, demanding payments from you, and threatening to take you to court if you don't pony up. Well, eventually you have a good friend who comes alongside you in the midst of your struggle, who invites you to find another place, finds another place for you, and they actually stroke the check to pay off all the debts that you might owe this former landlord, and you joyfully settle into your new digs. Well, lo and behold, and to your dismay, the old landlord has found where you live, and eventually comes back and starts banging on your door, demanding more money from you and threatening to take you back to court. Now, put yourself in that moment psychologically, because suddenly all your fears come roaring back. Do they not? And all of a sudden, in the midst of just the fear and the terror that you begin to feel and the panic, you're almost tempted to pay the guy just to try to get him off your back. But here's what you do instead. Instead, you stop you get yourself calm, and you begin reminding yourself that you don't owe him anything anymore. You even go back to the papers that you signed, all the, all the sort of payment receipts. You check them. You look through them again just to remind you what you know to be true about your new status. Well, this is exactly what Paul is saying in verse 11. Look what he says. So you also must consider, that's the key word, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Focus on that word consider. Some of your translations say reckon. I always love that word. Well, I reckon. But what it means, though, is, and when I was growing up, I remember reading this thinking that what Paul was talking about was like a, a fresh leap of faith. Come on, let's let's all consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I don't think that's what he means. This is not like a power of positive thinking thing that Paul is establishing here. Rather, that uh, uh, that word translated consider, interesting, is coming from the world of accounting. Accountants, this is your time to shine, so pay attention. It's a bookkeeping term, and it makes this really powerful. Because if you think about what an accountant does, It's really fun to watch ministers try to be experts in other people's industry, so you'll enjoy this. An accountant doesn't bring something into existence that wasn't there before, do they? No. An accountant comes in to help the company that they're working for, or whatever business it is, to become aware of a situation that already exists. You're not creating a new reality. You're simply living in what is true. So there's a sense in which Paul is looking at Christians and he's saying, hey, look, stop, pause, just do the math. Or in the way in which I've been saying over and over again, sit down and rework the calculus. What is it that is true about me? What has God done in and for and through Jesus Christ in this glorious justification? That preoccupation with the gospel is normal Christian living. A Christian grows in his interest in diving deeper in this because they work it over and over again. Why? Because the value is in this, because your behavior always follows your identity. This is huge. I'm not sure if I can lean on anything more this morning. What you do is a function of who you are. How you conceive of who you are is essential to whatever new life Jesus is wanting to give to you. Here's what I mean by this. Your life story. You realize everybody has a life story. And I don't mean like, a, well, then I was in first grade and I was in second grade and then we moved to Houston. I'm not talking about what you did. I'm saying that there is a narrative that you believe about yourself working at any given moment of your life. What is your story right now? Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? Is it, a, is it an adventure? We all are telling ourselves something about our world and lifestyle will always follow that narrative. So the question is, how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? Well, that brings us to the last question, and that is the implications that this has for a brand new life. Look, there really aren't any other place in the, there's no other place in the Bible where we are more set up to understand what we might call the psychology of biblical change than what we get in Romans 6. This is the heart of it right here. How it is that Christianity uniquely views change in, the word, in what Paul is saying. Let me establish one thing first before we move into that. First of all, we have to realize that change in the Christian world is not optional. Okay? It's not as if you know, God established this whole program of salvation uh, uh, to leave people where they are. No, no. If you go back to the beginning of when God began to form the people of God, which happened with a guy named Abraham he made a covenant with him. One of the terms of that covenant wasn't just sort of make him a big people and give him lots of descendants. But one of the terms of that covenant was that his family would be a blessing to the Gentiles. In other words, from the very beginning, God has said, I am here to bring a worldwide healing, and that includes you and that includes me. The point is, you don't remain static when you're following Jesus. He's always moving his people to holiness. To distinctiveness, to purity. The question is, how do we get there? That's what's unique about the Christian view of change. Because here's the deal every world religion says that. There's nothing unique about Christianity saying, you know what, I wish the world were a better place. Every religion does that. What does make us distinctive, though, is the way that we approach this. And I am really, really thankful for my good friend Brian Habig, who helped me through this a couple of years ago in a sermon he did on this topic where he said, look, think about this on psychological terms. Because what justification means is, whether you feel it or not, God is counting you, remember the accounting, right? As if you are righteous. He's considering your faith righteousness. But if you're in Christ, that means that the old you died. And there's been a new you that is resurrected. But here's the question you've got to ask. This is the psychological question. How do you count you? That's the narrative question. What is the narrative that you have about yourself? Let's see if we get more specific about that. Let's take let's an take example that Christians make a big deal that in order to deal with sin, you've got to deal with forgiveness. You know, God forgives his people, and well enough that is. But this is what Hey big asks. He says, but are you a forgiven you that you've always been? Or are you a forgiven new you? This is a big deal. Because if deep down you simply think that you're a forgiven old you, then you're actually going to flounder in your faith and probably not make any progress and change. Let's get more specific. Let's take an example. If you are a forgiven old you, and let's say you struggle with a habit of, of, of pornography. You're one of those people, though, who believes that that's bad for you. And you would rather that not mark your life as an individual or a Christian or whatever. In that moment where you're seeking forgiveness for this habit, are you seeking forgiveness for the old you? Because if you are, you're really at a fork in the road. Because at that moment, there's gonna be a voice that pops into your head and says something along this. Look, I know you believe in Jesus and everything, but let's be honest, you've always done this. This is the real you. This is what you've always done. I know you may make it for a long stretch here and there of trying to abstain from whatever temptation you're looking at, but the truth of the matter is, this is who you are. Can you feel how debilitating that is? And if the illustration can make you feel how debilitating it is, perhaps you can understand how how it operates every single day inside of our own psychology. Because here's what Paul is saying, at that moment, The narrative about who you are is critical. Paul wants you to see that the gospel is not, you know what, you're always going to be this pornography-loving person that maybe, I don't know, cross your fingers, gets to go to heaven when you die. What he's saying like is, look, whether you feel like it or not, that porn-loving person has been killed. And you are now a new you, a completely different person. Now, have we learned to apply this flawlessly? Well, of course not. Why else would Paul have to be uh, instructing us about it? But what occurs to me is the alternative to approaching change in this way to me is so much worse. Because I feel like invariably when Christians encounter sin and struggle as Christians, it seems our first instinct is to want to make a jump to doubt our salvation. They think to our, we get confused because we fail, we stumble, and we suddenly start to think, well, what if that means that me and God are really not on, the, on a good, good stead with each other? What if that means we really are in, in, at odds with one another? And it occurs to me that if I wanted to sabotage a program of being made holy, this is exactly how I would do it. What I would do is I would get you to constantly question whether you're in or whether you're out. Which is the reason why in Romans 4 and 5, Paul goes to these incredible links to get us to, to establish that fact of what it looks like to look in emptiness in faith to Jesus alone. Look, Here's the point. All of this stuff that happens internally in us is a change in the way we see ourselves. And that's what Paul's wanting to get us to explore. I've had at least two experiences with this. It's my two final illustrations I'll close with. When I was in high school, um, I made um, a lot of bad choices. There were plenty of bad choices I made. Uh, I have a special guest this morning. My mother decided to join us for church. It's, always a, it's a treat to have Bring Your Mom to Church Sunday. Um, so we're going to do a little disclosure, but she remembers this occasion. Uh, one of those catalogued of bad choices was, I've mentioned this before, uh, was decided to go out with four or five of my friends one particular evening and race through suburban streets in a car uh, throwing biscuit dough at oncoming cars. It felt pretty innocuous. Can I tell you what the justification was? We were like, well, no, we're not going to throw eggs at other people's car because that's destructive. You know, with, <laughs> with the biscuit dough, you just peel it off and it's fine. It's just good fun, right? Well, turns out that the undercover cop car that we hit did not think in that particular way. <laughs> and, of course, he pulled us over <coughs> and reported us. Uh, and, and he added this thing, is this, and we're also going to tell your parents. So I went home that particular evening, and let's just say that that evening was unpleasant. But I, it's very interesting. I still remember what my father, God rest his soul, uh, said to me in that moment. Because he said, it, to some degree, he was saying this. He said, Let's look. Every time you leave this house, you have the same last name as I do. And people are going to look at me depending on the way in which you act. Because we both bear the last name Newsome. And therefore, in this regard, um, I, he was appealing to me on the basis of my identity, wasn't he? Which in a weird way, when I look back on it, was both sobering, but it also was a little bit encouraging. It was encouraging because he was saying, "Look, I'm not casting you out, but this behavior is unacceptable. That's the balance. Don't you see it? That's the wisdom I think that Paul is giving his listeners. <clears throat> you know, back in 1988, Olympia Dukakis won an Academy Award. What the Oscars tonight? Oscars are tonight. So it's an it's a, it's a appropriate theme. Olympia Dukakis won the Best actress, Supporting Actress for her role in the uh, delightful romantic comedy called Moonstruck. Love this movie. And there's this fantastic scene where uh, Dukakis uh, plays this elderly lady who is standing at the steps of her uh, New York uh, brownstone. And she's there with another man, a younger man. And the younger man is not making any uh, sort of a mass movements towards her. He wants to, you know, uh, sort of have an affair. And she says no. And at that point, he says something to the effect of, well, is it because you think somebody's at home? And her response is so golden. She says, no, I actually think the house is empty. I can't invite you in because I'm married. Because I know who I am. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the way a Christian argues with themselves. And as we sort of go through this study of trying to figure out how to break up this commonplace approach to Christianity, there's nothing like looking and saying, what is the story that I'm believing about myself now and challenging that with what Paul says? Who knows? Maybe it might bring a different view of change. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to ask you in a fresh way for you to change us. We need you to do that. Uh, oftentimes, we don't know how, though. We've tried willpower. We've tried uh, three-step programs. We've tried waiting on some mystical experience to move us into something different. But instead, you've come down an entirely different way. You came and you paid it all. You justified us. You made a pronouncement about us. And then you drew us very close. So, Father, even though we don't always know what that means, we want to draw close to you now. And You did say that you would inhabit our praise. So as, even as we're singing, might we get a fresh sense that you are near, that you're close, that you love us. And then in our singing, we might offer our words back to you as our expression of love to you. And then, Father, let it continue into our afternoon, into our week. Keep us safe and secure in the knowledge that you have us. But We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.